Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Holly Kernan, executive editor of News for KQED in San Francisco, and I'll be your moderator for today's program. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Robert Reich. He's Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the former US Secretary of Labor and the author of the new book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. Robert Reich has served in three national administrations, including as Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. Time Magazine named him one of the 10 most successful cabinet secretaries of the century. Professor Reich has written 14 books. Uh, He is the chair of the National Governing Board of Common Cause, and he created the award-winning 2013 uh, documentary, Inequality for All. He's here today to discuss what he calls the oddest presidential election in recent memory. Please welcome Robert Reich. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oi. Uh, Just show of hands, how many of you saw the first presidential debate? All of you. Uh, uh, How many of you, and I don't want to embarrass any of you here tonight, uh, how many of you thought that Hillary Clinton won the debate? 723 of you. How many of you thought that Donald Trump won the debate? One of you. And the last row of the balcony, and you're heading out right now. Well, would that the rest of America resembled you. (laughs) Even resembled California. Even resembled the West Coast. Uh, When I uh, was out in middle America about a year ago, uh, flogging my new book, as I do every few years when I have a new book to flog, I asked my publisher to do something unusual, I, 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 because the book uh, really attempts to reach out to the other America, that is to people who call themselves Republicans, conservatives, uh, Tea Partiers, uh, and I asked the publisher to send me to places where my books normally 
don't sell. Well, <laughs> that's pretty much everywhere, but I wanted, <laughs> I, I wanted the publisher this time to send specifically uh, to uh, so-called red states and red cities in red states, where a majority of people in the bookstores or wherever I would talk uh, would describe themselves as Republicans, conservatives, and Tea Partiers. And indeed, that's where I did spend most of my last September and October and some of November. Uh, and I talked with a lot of people uh, who disagreed with me, and I firmly believe that the best way any of us can learn anything is to talk with people who disagree with us. And, and one of the great tragedies in America, exemplified by this very strange election, uh, is that we are not talking across the great gulfs that separate us. In any event, I, I did have conversations, and one of those conversations, now this, remember, this was a year ago, uh, and it was at a time when the political prognosticators were all saying, obviously, uh, the Democratic candidate will be Hillary Clinton, and obviously, the Republican candidate will be Jeb Bush. And the real question is, how are they going to do relative to one another? But I was picking up something very different. When I would talk to these audiences, now remember, these are people who, when I would ask them at the start, how many of you would describe yourselves as conservative, Republican, Tea Party, a majority would put up their hands. And I said, well, well, you know, how are you feeling politically? Who excites you? Who's interesting to you? And wherever I went, Cincinnati, uh, Kansas City, uh, southern cities, uh, midwestern cities, wherever I went, I had people saying to me, uh, there are two people we're trying to make up our minds between. One is Donald Trump and the other is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and I said, but how can that be? <laughs> uh, and they were very clear, many of them were very articulate about their reasons. Uh, they felt that we needed a, a change, a fundamental change. They felt that the system was rotten. Uh, I heard them use a phrase that I've heard before, but I hadn't heard it used as uniformly by as many people in various audiences and various groups I talked with, uh, and that was crony capitalism. They felt that Washington and even their state governments were guilty of crony capitalism, that the system was basically corrupt and corrupted by big money. They, they talked about corporate welfare. Uh, in fact, when I was asked at question time, what's the first thing I would do in terms of dealing with the problems of this country, I would say, get big money out of politics, and they applauded. Now, this came as a shock to me. Now, maybe it doesn't come as a shock to you, but it came as a shock to me because uh, obviously there were many things that we disagreed about, uh, particularly issues of social agenda, on abortion, on uh, issues having to do with gay marriage, uh, on a lot of racial questions. Nevertheless, when it came to these fundamental economic political questions, and I say fundamental because after all, if our democracy is not working, what else can be done? There was a remarkable degree of overlap. And as I continued through my book tour, I began to see a pattern. And that pattern was people who 
felt that the establishment had to be somewhere and some way overturned. I, 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 had, I had written in the book already, in fact, it maybe it, it was almost it was almost the book uh, coming to life in front of me in a kind of a scary way, uh, because I had written in the book that the great divide I predicted in the future would not be Democrats versus Republicans or even liberals as we understand the term versus conservatives. That is, active government versus small government. I predicted that the biggest divide in the future would be anti-establishment versus establishment, and there I was in America's heartland with people describing themselves as conservatives who were resolutely anti-establishment. I also was struck by the ways people spoke. In fact, when Bernie Sanders began to campaign, I heard the same phrases that these people were using. And they were Republicans, and Bernie Sanders obviously, well, I don't know exactly to this day. But a lot of people were surprised by the success of Bernie Sanders, and obviously many people are absolutely apoplectically surprised by the success of Donald Trump. Uh, but let me just say to you tonight that I think that one thing the 2016 election shows is the rise of something that is very different from what we've seen in the past. Uh, this kind of anti-establishment wave is not going away, regardless of what happened to Bernie Sanders or what happened to Donald Trump. The real choice before us, I think, over the next 20 or 25 or 30 years, is what kind of anti-establishment we have. Is it authoritarian populism, a la Donald Trump, or somebody following in Donald Trump's wake? Or is it democratic populism, something like Bernie Sanders? Let me also describe to you a conversation I had a couple of months ago. I, I was interested in this whole issue of, of cutting across the great boundaries uh, that keep us apart. And, and I had been uh, sort of uh, thinking about the book tour, and I, I, I got curious. I, I, I wanted to meet and talk with a man uh, named David Bratt. How many of you know David Bratt or know of David Bratt? Have you ever heard of David Bratt? Uh, now, there are here, I'm estimating about seven or 800 of you. One of you, one of you has heard of David Bratt. Now, this is interesting and important. Uh, David Bratt is a member of Congress from the 7th District in Virginia, uh, Richmond area. Uh, David Bratt is the first congressman in history ever in a primary to win a victory over an incumbent majority leader of the House of Representatives. Uh, David Bratt overthrew, I mean really did, overthrew Eric Cantor uh, in 2014. And he did it, and this is why I was curious about meeting David Bratt, he did it by calling Eric Cantor a crony capitalist a stooge of Wall Street, somebody who really was taking a great deal of money uh, from the powers that were overrunning Washington, was not thinking about the average person and the needs of the average person. In other words, he was indicting Eric Cantor in some of the same ways that Bernie Sanders was indicting 
two years later, various members of Congress and others. And I went down to meet David. I called him first before I went down to meet him, obviously, and I, and I didn't know what, I would, what, I would, what to expect. And his staff uh, said they'd get back to me. And about a day later, uh, they got back and said he'd be delighted to meet with you. And I went to Richmond. Uh, he's campaigning again. Uh, he's going to be reelected, I'm sure. It's very popular. And we had a, about three hours of discussion about the political economy of America. Uh, what struck me about that discussion is here is a man, uh, you must also understand, David Bratt is rated by the Congressional Conservative Digest, which rates all members of Congress according to how conservative they are. He is one of the two most conservative Republicans in Congress, according to this Conservative Digest. Uh, this man is, believe me, you must believe me, he is to the right of Attila. <laughs> on many, many, many issues, on many issues. Uh, but he's a, a, we had a very cordial and, and very friendly and interesting conversation. It wasn't just cordial and friendly. I don't care about cordial and friendly. But when we got to these questions about the role of big money in politics, about how our democracy is actually being undermined by money, and how that is affecting the structure of our market and our economy, he and I could have been reading out of the exact same playbook. Uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, I thought that he had read my book before I <laughs> arrived, and he hadn't. I left him a copy. <laughs> but you see, the argument in the book is, is simply this, that we've been debating, liberals and conservatives, uh, for several generations. Uh, the same old debate. That is, do you believe in the free market or do you believe in government? And those who believe in the free market are conservatives and those who believe in government or trust government are liberals. Or another variation of the argument is, do you want a big government or a small government? Or another variation of the same argument is, do you think that the wealthy ought to be taxed more and there ought to be more redistribution down to everybody else? Uh, but it all is kind of the, the same predictable argument. And I've been in that predictable argument forever. Uh, but what I suggested in the book, and David Brad agreed with me, is that actually you can't separate the free market from the government because the government sets the rules of the free market. You can't have a free market without government. Administrative agencies and legislators and courts are setting through law, determining what it is, even the molecular structure of the market. What is property? What is, what is a valid contract? Uh, what is an enforceable contract? What is uh, a kind of, what bankruptcy? If you can't pay your bills, what happens? Uh, what are your rights and duties under bankruptcy? If you, and we, we go th down through the molecular structure, the building blocks of capitalism, uh, all of these decisions have to be made. And they are made. And they are made differently in different cultures, in different societies. And they're made differently in the United States at different times. They have evolved. We take for granted these issues. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. 
Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. But think of it just for a moment in terms of property. We used to, there was a time in the United States, when you could own people. And obviously, values changed and politics changed and we abolished slavery. So it can't be that everything we believe about the market in terms of property and contract and, and, and enforceability and, and monopolization is the same forever. It isn't. It keeps on changing. And the question is not free market versus government. And the question is not big or small government. The question is who government is for. And the pertinent question is who is influencing the making of those rules? Is it most of us or all of us? Or is it a small group of people with a great deal of power and a great deal of influence because they have a great deal of wealth? And what has happened clearly over the last 40 years, 30 years, I've seen it because I went into, into government for the first time, my first job in 1967. Oh, I'm so old. <laughs> Was working as an intern for Robert F. Kennedy in his Senate office. And in those days, Washington was kind of seedy. But there were people like Robert F. Kennedy who towered above the city in terms of their, their moral righteousness. And, but there were also people who, at that time, were affecting national politic, policy, Martin Luther King and, and others. It was a time that is quite different in terms of the optimism, the excitement, the stakes the moral authority of government than it is now. But it is also different in terms of the amount of money pouring into Washington and into, and into state capitals. I mean, think even at the most prosaic level. In those days, 
if you looked at intellectual property, patents or copyrights or trademarks, you didn't have nearly the degree of protection you have right now. What has happened over the last 30, 40, 50 years is that because of lobbying and because of campaign contributions uh, and because of extraordinary platoons of lawyers uh, from some very large corporations, you've had an extension of all of this intellectual property far beyond what we had before, and that simply means that a lot of people pay more for a lot of things that we buy. The Mickey Mouse Protection Act was enacted in 1998. I, I was just leaving Washington. Do you know about the Mickey Mouse Protection Act? Some of you do. Do you want me to tell you about the Mickey Mouse Protection? I don't have that, that much time. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, the Mickey Mouse Protection Act uh, is just an example uh, it was an extension of the copyright law, another extension. I mean, these, this thing is extended all the time. It was extended because the copyright on Mickey Mouse and indirectly on Donald Duck and a lot of other Disney characters was just about to run out. Uh, and so Disney organized uh, a lot of lobbyists, a huge effort to extend copyright protection another 10 years or however many years. And uh, the justification, the logic, given was that we want to provide the creators with enough copyright protection that they will have an incentive to continue to create, which makes more, a lot of sense until you realize that Walt Disney has been dead for many, many years. Uh, and, then, and then there are people like uh, the, the Gershwin estate, you know, the heirs of George and Ira, who, who, who also had very strong feelings about extending the copyrights, but George and Ira are no longer with us. Uh, they don't need that kind of incentive. Uh, in, fact, in fact, when you have a, a copyright protection that goes far beyond the lifespan of most people, you just have to wonder how much incentive people need to be creative. I mean, maybe they are celestially creative. Uh, but we in the United States, to give you another example, we pay more for pharmaceuticals than the citizens of any other country. Well, why is that? Uh, partly it's patent protection. Uh, it's easier to extend patents if you're a pharmaceutical industry, uh, some pharmaceutical company, you have to just make small changes in the composition of your patented chemical or drug, very small changes in the patent office, given the authority, given it to it by Congress, and what it cannot do because of Congress, uh, that patent will be renewed. Uh, or we have in this country something that's called pay for delay. Uh, if I'm the pharmaceutical company and I, I'm afraid my patent is about to, about to run out, uh, well, what I might do is I'll sue a generic manufacturer uh, for patent infringement. I'll just make up a lawsuit. And then I'll settle the lawsuit by saying to the generic manufacturer, well, why don't you do this? We will pay you to delay your introduction of the generic version of our patented product and uh, that's great, you'll win and we'll win. The only losers are us. Uh, or the pharmaceutical company obviously got a law saying we can no longer buy our pharmaceuticals, our drugs from Canada. Uh, and on also another law that prohibits Medicare Medicaid, the government from using its huge bargaining leverage through all of these federal programs uh, to negotiate lower drug prices. I could go on, I could bore you all night long. Uh, the internet, uh, have you noticed that, well maybe you haven't, that's the problem, we don't notice, uh, that the internet 
service costs for Americans is much larger. It's the highest of any, any advanced country. And we have among the slowest internet services of any advanced country. Why is that? Does it have anything to do with money and politics at all? Does it, class? <laughs> of course it does, because, because you've got a handful of major cable companies that basically are, 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 are prohibiting, are, are barring uh, a lot of cities from laying fiber optic cables and, and making it cheaper, and they really wanted a lock, an iron lock grip on this entire internet service industry. And we could go on and on all night. I could bore you with, with hundreds and thousands of examples, uh, but I won't. Oh, I will one more. Uh, I was interested uh, for different reasons uh, in hedge fund managers and private equity managers. And uh, specifically, I was interested, uh, while I was writing the book, I got more and more interested in insider trading. Because it seemed to me that one of the major reasons that a lot of hedge funds were doing as well as they were doing, I have nothing personally against hedge funds. I think uh, they're great. Well, I don't think they're great. But I think that there, there's a, a use for them in terms of hedging uh, various financial bets. Uh, but they're making unbelievable amounts of money. And so uh, the sort of microeconomist in my head, uh, when, when any industry is making uh, far more money than any other industry, I, I begin to wonder, where is the rent-seeking or monopolization going on? Uh, and of course, it, ha it has to do with insider trading. Unlike any other country, we, right now, because of decisions that have been made by the government, in this case, uh, some court decisions, have a situation in which if you, one of you, has a company and you know you are just about to introduce a new product or an acquisition or a merger that is going to create huge, huge increases in the price of your shares of stock, and you go out with your friend on a golf trip, for example, and you tell your friend, and your friend goes home and tells his partner, and his partner uh, goes out and tells somebody else, and that somebody else uh, makes a fortune on that information, uh, that's perfectly legal, even though everybody along that chain knew it was confidential information. That is not legal anywhere else in the advanced industrial world. These examples that I'm giving you, and I could give you a lot more, have to do with the rigging of the game. When Hillary Clinton started her campaign, she said, and I quote, the deck is stacked in favor of those at the top. Now, I was there personally in 1992 when Bill Clinton started his campaign for the presidency, and he would have never said anything like that. That would have sounded so radical. It would have sounded bizarre. Because nobody would have thought in 1991 or 1992 that the deck was stacked in favor of those at the top. That's not the way we thought in those days. But to talk about the game being rigged or the deck being stacked is no longer a radical proposition. Most people feel it. Most people feel that they're working harder than ever and they are not getting anywhere. They feel like there is a small group of people whose wealth and income and power and influence is almost unbounded. They feel disenfranchised. And indeed, that's what I ran into 
in the Midwest. That's what I ran into when I talked to David Bratt. That's what I run into over and over again, a feeling of being disenfranchised, a feeling that somehow politics and our economy are interwoven and they are both working against most of us. That's a dangerous phenomenon, by the way. But it is prevailing. I got a call from the New York Times in 2008, in the election of 2008. Some uh, a New York Times reporter said, you know, we've come across uh, a, a whole set of, of letters that Hillary Clinton wrote from college. Uh, and one of the letters was about you. I said, me? And the Times reporter said, yes, uh, apparently you went out on a date with her. And I said, I, I was about to say the truth, which is I didn't remember, but I thought that would be impolitic. So I said, can you tell me a little bit about the letter? <laughs> and, and he said, yes, yes. She, says, she mentioned she went to a, a movie uh, with you, and I, I, I struggled, and it came to me. We went to a movie in Hanover, New Hampshire. She was at Wellesley. Uh, she was up. I, I was president of my class. She was president of her class. I arranged a kind of presidential summit. Uh, and we went, to, uh, we went to see Antonioni's Blow Up. And then the New York Times reporter in 2008 said, is there anything you can tell me about that date that might shed light on how she would perform as a president? And I paused. And then with my tongue firmly implanted in my cheek, I said, well, I, I, she wanted an inordinate amount of popcorn. And then there was a silence on the other end. I thought, I thought he had hung up, and I, I said, are you still there? He said, I'm just writing this down. Such is our quality of political reporting. I've known her for a very long time. I've known Hillary Clinton for almost 50 years, and I've known Bill Clinton for almost as long, and although they don't credit me with the meeting of the two of them, I should get credit because I did introduce the two of them. Uh, in fact, uh, we were, the three of us were in a, a class together at Yale Law School, a, a civil and political liberties class taught by a wonderful older gentleman named Tommy Emerson. I remember him very well. Uh, there was a fourth person in that class you may also recognize, uh, Clarence Thomas. Uh, and, and here's the thing, I remember distinctly whenever Tommy Emerson would ask a question, and this is the Socratic method, this is still used in law schools today, he would ask a question, Hillary's hand would be the first one in the air, uh, mine would be about the second or third, uh, and it, whenever he called on her, she would have a perfect answer. I mean perfect. When he called on me, I got it right about half the time. Bill never attended class. <laughs> And, and Clarence said nothing. <laughs> Do you see how all of this stuff is linked together? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. 
Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now. And, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I've always been impressed by Hillary, quite frankly, in terms of her dedication and enthusiasm uh, and also her sense and passion for social justice. It's real. It has been there right from the beginning. I think she will win. I hope to God she wins. <laughs> but But I, I think that there is, and it is very important to understand that these, these undercurrents are very large. And they're not necessarily bad. When a gap is created between our social ideals, in this case the ideal of an economy that works for all of us, and the ideal of a democracy that works for all of us, and is responsive to all of us, and the reality that we actually experience, when that gap gets too wide, in the United States, unlike other countries, we do not fall into isms. We actually roll up our sleeves and get on with what has to be done. And we've done it before. Uh, what we are facing today is not all that different from what we faced 120 years ago, uh, just before the progressive era, when you have the Gilded Age, the robber barons, who, who not only monopolized industry, but changed the rules of the game of capitalism for themselves, uh, actually put stacks of money, of, 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 of money on the desks of pliant legislators. Uh, we had inequality then in this country that 
is, was almost, was really actually larger, wider than the inequality we're experiencing today. We had deep cynicism, but we also had, and this is important to remember, we had people who understood the gap between ideal and reality, and they rolled up their sleeves and did what had to be done. They were reformers, they were muckrakers, they were not only populists and progressives, they were also very wealthy individuals who understood that they would do better with a smaller share of, a, of an economy that was growing faster because more people were put to work and more people had a stake in the economy than they were doing then with a very large share of an economy that really was only working for them. They understood that they would do better in a society that was less riven with anger and demagoguery than they would do in a society where people were more collaborative than felt that they had a mutual stake in the outcomes of the economy and politics. And so that progressive era marked a turning point for America. And we did it again under different circumstances in the New Deal. And we did it again to some extent under different circumstances. And some of you remember this, judging from my eyeballing gray hair of some of you, or no hair of some of you. Uh, <laughs> We did it again in the 1960s in terms of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and, and then the Environmental Protection Act. People forget one of the great thrills of my life is spending my days. One of the reasons I am as optimistic as I am is not only that we've done it before repeatedly and we will do it again, but also that I spend my days with wonderful young people at the best public university in America, if not the world. And they are, this generation of young people is more, more idealistic and more service-oriented than any generation I remember. But here's the thing, they don't have the experience that some of us do through the anti-Vietnam War movement and through the Civil Rights Movement of efficacy. You see, some of us in this room remember that when we joined together, we made change. And although there is a lot of reason for, I think, optimism, I think the fight for 15 and the Black Lives Matter, uh, even the extraordinary impact. I mean, Bernie Sanders, a, a, a Jew social democrat, Jewish social democrat from, from an independent, not even a democrat, from Vermont of all places, <laughs> to get 20 states and almost, and, and the majority of people under 30, that is real. That's amazing. That's real progress, folks. That's amazing. Never expected it. Uh, and so I believe we are on the cusp of another era of, of genuine change and genuine reform. And I hope, I hope that it doesn't go in the direction of authoritarianism. I hope it goes in the direction of genuine change as we have and reform as we've done it again and again and again before. And I believe it will. As long as we recognize what we're up against. What we do need to change. And my conversations on my book tour and my conversations with David Bratt and others convinced me, not only because we've done it before, not only because I teach these wonderful undergraduates and graduate students, but also because there's so many people who are talking the same language when it comes to the economy and money in politics as many of us in this room are talking. It seems to me 
change will occur and it will be positive change. Thank you and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Well done. Our thanks to Robert Reich, Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley, former U.S. Secretary of Labor and author of the book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, which we will be talking about now. Uh, please remember to submit your questions over here. Just uh, fill out the question cards. Um, you just said that we're talking the same language. Um, many of us watched the first debate recently it feels like we're not talking the same language. So can you Is talk? Is there a bird in here? <laughs> it's a drone. It's a drone. <laughs> talking the same language. Yes. Uh, I mean, it feels like there's this, this huge divide right now. And you talked about sort of insider versus outsider, anti-establishment versus status quo. It, it feels like we're almost not talking the same language. And frankly, watching and listening to the debate, that was pretty doggone clear. Well, I don't want to be a cockeyed optimist, Holly. I, I do uh, see that there are fundamental differences. Again, mostly on issues like abortion, gay marriage, uh, some uh, racial justice differences, different attitudes. Uh, but uh, I, I think it would be wrong to assume that we are not speaking a very similar language when it comes to these issues that I consider to be core issues of the democracy, of democracy and the economy. Uh, and uh, and let me just say I. You know, I have been in a bubble. I, I used to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I used to teach at an institution not quite as good as the University of California, Berkeley. Exactly! Go Bears! Uh, but I traded up, and I... <laughs> and, I, and, I, I, and, I, and I went uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts to uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, 3,000 miles separating those two cities. But do you know something I discovered, I, I should have known, they're part of the same bubble. Mm -hmm. They're actually the same city. Uh, the climate is better in Berkeley. Uh, but uh, yes, we are divided, and uh, social media divides us even more. The algorithms that make it possible for us to only speak with and hear and read things that uh, agree with us and confirm our our biases and our prejudices, uh, that's a huge, huge problem. I don't want to minimize any of these problems. Uh, I just want to suggest to you that there is room for some real optimism here. Which is a good thing. We need optimism. Yes, I think that we need optimism, but I think there's a lot of room for uh, Seriously, I'm, I'm not trying to... Uh, I, I feel this way very strongly. Uh, I think the, there are too many people... You know, I walk through airports uh, very often, and I think because I'm rather conspicuous looking, people who I don't know come up to me and they, they say things. Uh, they, they come up to me, uh, complete strangers, and they say, well, what are we gonna do? <laughs> now put yourself in my position. A complete stranger comes up to you in an airport and says, what are we gonna do? Uh, I say, I don't know, but I'm... <laughs> And then I, I say, well, what are you going to do? That usually stops them dead in their tracks. I think there's an expectation that you should be leading some sort of movement. 
Uh, well, therein lies one of our problems, because we are all leaders. Uh, we expect a savior. We expect a kind of somebody who is going to come and lead us uh, to the promised land. But if you look at the, at the most successful social movements in our society, and I'm talking about you know, the, the last century, uh, the women's suffrage or the labor movement or all the way up through civil rights. Yes, we had outstanding people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but we had large webs uh, of people who felt uh, empowered and they felt that they needed to act. Uh, and that's, I believe, what is beginning to happen. Well, so do you think that what's happening with Donald Trump and what did happen with Bernie Sanders is sort of a precursor to some sort of populist, anti-establishment, antitrust movement? I, I do. Uh, I think that uh, the anti-establishment wave that is building uh, can be either very positive or it can be, as I said before, it could move in authoritarian directions. Uh, I don't think it will. Uh, I think it can, uh, when Hillary Clinton is president, that, that movement, that anti-establishment movement, I think can be very helpful to her uh, in terms of accomplishing uh, some very important things that she needs to accomplish. Uh, you know, having been in Washington as many years as I have served in Washington, I know that you can have the best people uh, in the world uh, elected, but nothing will happen unless good people outside Washington are organized and mobilized and energized to push the people in Washington to make good, people, good things happen. It's dangerous when people are not. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot -E com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. 
organized and mobilized and energies, energized. And that's why I think that uh, we may, that Hillary Clinton not only will be a, an extraordinarily successful president, but to the extent that the rest of us help her and push her, she will be that much more successful. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program, and our guest today is Robert Reich, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, who is discussing the bizarre politics of 2016. I'm Holly Kernan, your moderator. You can hear Commonwealth Club programs on the radio and catch up with the program videos on the club's YouTube channel. And now for some of uh, our audience questions. How do you counter the argument that Hillary is crooked? Crooked Hillary, as she's been named, branded. Well, she's not. <laughs> uh, and again, and yet, I, when I, you do polls, well, I, I wanna, she comes off as more untrustworthy than Donald well, Trump does. Well, I want you all to remember something. Uh, for the last 25 years, I don't know a person in American politics who has been as vilified for 25 years as has Hillary Clinton. Uh, I remember in 1992, at the end of 1992, uh, in fact, it was just before the election mm -hmm. of 1992, uh, we both were here in San Francisco, and we flew from San Francisco back to Washington, uh, and we sat next to each other. And she, during that flight, uh, said to me, and I'll never forget this, she said, I don't understand why they hate me. And I said, well... They don't hate you, but there's a lot of uh, anger out there at somebody who is a baby boomer and a, a, a powerful woman uh, and well-educated, uh, Ivy League. Uh, and I went through a whole list mm -hmm. of things. Then, And I don't think I calmed her down, but I think that... <laughs> uh, I, think that uh, I, I think that it's true. I, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, is and has been for 25 years uh, the first of her generation. A very, very controversial generation, uh, and the first woman of her generation to uh, be as uh, powerful in many ways as she has been, uh, that's going to stir up a hornet's nest. Uh, she also faced right from the beginning what she later described as a vast right-wing conspiracy, and at the time I was doubtful. I, I'm, a, I'm not a conspiratorial theorist. I, I don't believe in conspiracies. It's not so much a conspiracy, but it is a vast right-wing organizing attempt right from the beginning uh, to knock Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton down. And I saw it. I was there. Uh, one thing after another with Whitewater and Travelgate and Troopergate and Vince Foster, uh, you remember, and on and on and on. And there was never any shred of evidence that actually proved any of the malfeasance that anybody accused her of doing. But just think of that accumulating over 25 years. Uh, in the subterranean vaults of the public's mind. Uh, and you get an understanding of why it could be that there is distrust. Uh, th also, let me just add one other factor. Uh, she's human, and to that extent, and I've used this metaphor a few times, if, you're, if, you're, if you were walking, if you were just about to walk across a beautiful field, it's a gorgeous day, and you are feeling at the top of your form, and you start walking across the field, and you have a couple of friends with you, uh, but you keep running into landmines, uh, and your friends explode, and other people explode, and uh, you, it, it, you, you might begin 
to feel less confident. And you might, you might want to armor yourself a little bit. And you might become a little bit more cautious. Uh, and the day might not look quite as wonderful as it started to look. And I think that over 25 years, uh, any human being who has been subjected to what Hillary Clinton has been subject to is going to be a little cautious and a little armored. Uh, and I don't, I understand that. What do you ascribe, though, the sort of passion gap to? Um, people are, seem to be less passionate about Hillary Clinton than the Donald Trump supporters are about him. Because they know Hillary Clinton, or they feel like they know her so well. She's not a, she's a very familiar figure. Uh, and one thing that, uh, and this is not a criticism, but I think if, if I were advising her or had been able to advise her over the past 10 years, I would have said, uh, maybe uh, if I had known that there was this anti-establishment wave company coming, I would say, maybe you and your husband ought to distance yourselves a little bit more from the financial community. Uh, maybe you ought to be a little bit more conscious about the way things look because a lot of people already suspicious of you for no good reasons at all are going to possibly uh, be more suspicious uh, that you are part of, in fact, you represent this establishment. I think her, her biggest problem is not so much the distrust, although that is a big problem that has accumulated over the years. It's also that she is seen by much of this anti-establishment movement, this public, including many Bernie Sanders uh, supporters who are very reluctantly, but I think inevitably coming over to her, as part of the establishment. Absolutely. And so they say, well, wait a minute. If the establishment is crooked, uh, why isn't, isn't she crooked? If the establishment is corrupt, isn't she corrupt? If the establishment is, is about big money undermining our democracy, isn't that what she is, is doing or hasn't she done that? And it's hard for people to actually see politics at the level that they need to see it and to make the distinctions they need to make. So just to play devil's advocate, I, I thought that that was one of the best arguments in that debate. You've been around for 30 years. What have you done? How is it that we are in this situation that we're in with inequality as it is um, and with a, a game that seems to be rigged? I mean, well, I think that was a wonderful opportunity for Hillary Clinton to talk about all the things that she has done mm -hmm. over 30 years and ask Donald Trump, well, what have you done over the past 30 years? <laughs> So getting back to the questions from the audience, uh, why don't debate moderators or anybody else on TV ever ask candidates the tough questions about modern employment, jobs, problem, et cetera? Um, so the first debate was moderated by Lester Holt. Um, and I think that there's I was been disappointed. criticism. I, I was disappointed that there was not uh, specific questions about widening inequality, about the stagnation of wages, and also about uh, the undermining of our democracy by money. I, uh, to me, just in terms of what I study and what I worry about, and I think what I think a lot of other people worry about, uh, that's so central uh, to our dilemma that I wanted to hear that and I didn't hear questions about that. Do you think that we're in a, a sort of, I don't even know if it's, post-party, post-intellectual, but a, a kind of inter entertainment era? Undoubtedly. I mean, how, can, how else can you explain <laughs> Donald Trump? I mean, I know people, uh, in fact, some people uh, after the first debate said to me, uh, you know, I, I, think he's, I think he's just out of his gourd. He's, 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 a, he's a menace, but I really love watching him. He's just fascinating. <laughs> 
Uh, well, you see, that I think is part of the problem. Uh, and the media have been complicit. Uh, I don't know whether consciously they're trying to get ratings or whether uh, kind of there's a, a, a subconscious media, you would know much better than, than I do, Holly, uh, but uh, giving him the amount of, of airtime and the amount of uh, attention that the media have given him over the last year and a half is extraordinary. Nobody has had that kind of uh, attention. Uh, and he has played the media. And he, is, he knows how to play the media. He knows how to get ratings. Uh, he's a salesman. He's a huckster. That's what he does for his living, for crying out loud. And we are buying it. Hook, line, and sinker. Well, uh, the media, if you're saying we... We, the media, absolutely, I, I, I will absolutely, you know, mea culpa. Um, I would say that PBS and NPR have been a little more rational about this, but, um, yeah, I think that it's, I think that Donald Trump is manipulating the, the daily spin on a daily basis, and we are all following it, and, and it's entertaining as hell. It's entertainment. I, that's exactly, it's a reality show. Uh, I uh, watched the first debate, uh, and I was trying to get myself out of the position of being in my analytic, fact, truth, logical, <laughs> reasonable mind. You've succumbed uh, to the entertainment era. <laughs> well, no, I was actually trying to do something else. I was, I, was, I was trying to leave my cerebral cortex and move into my reptilian brain. Uh, and, uh, and, and for, I don't know, it must have been out of the total debate, maybe, maybe for 35 seconds, I was actually in my reptile brain, and I got it. I got it. I saw it. I saw the attraction. Uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with reason or logic or truth or fact or analysis or anything else that we normally associate with debates. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's all to do with both entertainment but also something much closer to reptilian emotion having to do with dominance and aggression uh, and anger. I mean, talk about, talk about an era of anger that we live in, anger that could easily be explained uh, in economic terms, and talk about the ability to channel that anger, to give expression to that anger, and unfortunately, direct it at scapegoats. Not the first time in history that economic stresses and anger associated with those stresses uh, have been channeled towards scapegoating. This has actually happened many times before in history, uh, but that's where the reptilian brain lives. So I want to get to that reptilian brain and kind of tie it back to your book, actually, the election to your book. Um, in your book, you cite the statistic, the statistic that in 2014, more than two-thirds two-thirds of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. Now, now, if you're living on the edge like that, it's really hard not to be in that kind of fight-or-flight mentality. Can you tie that into what's happening right now and maybe help us, help us understand sort of this populist movement that could go toward a sort of more democratic populist movement or toward a more authoritarian a Donald, Donald Trump? And we're on the cusp of this. This is actually something that could happen. In yes. Uh, well, uh, just uh, to, to focus on that economic stress for a moment, not only are two-thirds of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, uh, but we also know that even though... 
Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.